We were eye to eye there for a second. It was disturbing. All right, let's look at Luke 13, 31 through 35. Luke 13, 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Well, when I mention the name of various cities around the world, your mind instantly conjures up an image to think of that particular city. So if I say Paris, maybe your mind instantly thinks of the Eiffel Tower. Or perhaps England... And you think of Big Ben and that magnificent clock. Or Sydney, Australia, and you think of that iconic opera house. There are different images that come to mind when we think of a city. And sometimes it has something to do with a landscape or a feature of architecture in it. And sometimes it has to do with what happens in the city. For instance, when we think of New York, we might have possibly before thought of the Empire State Building or the World Trade Center, but we can't help but think about 9-11 and the towers that fell and that ensuing chaos. And hopefully we can't not think also about all the aftermath and the heroic rescue and the New York Fire Department and police and the character of the city as people came to aid those who had been injured or killed. Well, Jesus conjures up a picture of Jerusalem when he mentions the term. In fact, he uses, it seems like it's a cliche almost. Oh, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stone them, those who are sent to you. A picture that maybe the world had that Mediterranean world of Jerusalem, a place that kills the prophets. At least Jesus certainly saw it that way. Somewhat ironic that the term, that the name Jerusalem, Jerusalem, means foundation of peace or that which brings peace. And if we think of Jerusalem, we probably think of anything but a peaceful existence. There seems to be an inconsistency, certainly in Jesus' mind, about this city that it brings peace. And yet Jesus labels it as one that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent by God. That's the definition that Jesus gives of Jerusalem. And so we define different cities. And the question I have before you is what is it that defines you? I guess a person can have a definition as much as a city, right? We all have 
tombstones eventually, perhaps. I sometimes wander through graveyards late at night. And people sum up a person's life in a simple sentence. I think of Lee Ellen's grandfather, uh, uh, Billy Mays, and it was simply a good man. What defines us? I want to suggest that what defines you ultimately is how you respond to the plan of God. We are good reformed people and good reformed people understand that man does have free will. But free will is not like the definition of America's free will where I can choose my own reality. Rather, I can choose what I want. God gives me the freedom to choose what I want. And so what is it that I choose? For what I choose will ultimately define who I am. This passage in Scripture is ultimately about wants. In fact, the want word want is used in three different times in the Greek here. There's Herod who wants to kill Jesus. There's Jesus who wants to gather the citizens of Jerusalem like hens under his wings. And there's the people of Jerusalem who do not want to be gathered. So what is it that you want? For ultimately, our decisions determine our destinations. I want to walk through a process here of what Jesus wants in the scripture and then ultimately finish with the question, what is it that you want? So we begin with the first thing, Jesus' plan. Jesus wants to execute a plan. So let's take a look at that. We see at the beginning of this passage that Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. We've seen that since Luke 12. Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He's heading there, we know, ultimately to be betrayed and to be killed on a cross. Jesus himself understands that that's his destiny. And so he's slowly making his way toward Jerusalem. We don't really have necessarily an itinerary of where he is in that journey. But we see here in verse 31 that at that very hour, some Pharisees come to him and say to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now right away, I'm sure Jesus is suspicious because the Pharisees have been anything but helpful to Jesus over the last several encounters they've had with him. In fact, I'm very doubtful that the Pharisees are trying to look out for Jesus' welfare. There's an ulterior motive. The Pharisees come and say, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Seems that Pharisees and Herod are in collusion with one another. They want Jesus to move away from this particular location. Now what that location is, we know that Herod, and they're referring to Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, is the Tetrarch of Galilee and of Perea. And so if you think of um, Jerusalem kind of, excuse me, Israel kind of like north-south, in the north is Galilee, and then sort of in between Galilee and Jerusalem on the right side is Perea. So Jesus is heading and is in Herod's territory because he has the ability to kill him. Why does Herod want to kill Jesus? Well, Herod has been tricked into having to kill John the Baptist, who the Jews loved. 
And if you'll remember that these different kings have been placed in order to keep the peace. And so Herod is on shaky ground with Rome most likely. And so here is Jesus a threat to his kingship and Herod is feeling the heat of him. He can't kill him per se because that would, that would create a national uprising and perhaps that would be the end of his power and so Herod is being very crafty, maybe working through the Pharisees to communicate this message, get out of here. His plan is he wants Jesus away. Well, the Pharisees don't have power over Jesus because Herod has power and Herod doesn't seem likely to do anything. So the goal for the Pharisees is to push Jesus into the region where Jerusalem is because the Sadducees have power in religious matters down there. And once he's in the jurisdictions of the Sadducees, then they can do to Jesus what they want. And so both of them have their hidden agenda. Well, Jesus' response to them, to them, Jesus' response to Herod is unusually harsh. In fact, it's really the only time I can think of where he insults uh, in a, not in a tongue-in-cheek way, somebody. And Jesus said to them, verse 32, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day finish my course. Now, why does he call Herod a fox? which is a derogatory term back then. Well, still the moniker of what a fox is applies to today. A fox is crafty and cunning. And Herod Antipas was known as very much so being a, a cunning and crafty man. See, he was one of the sons of Herod the Great, and Herod had had several of his sons already killed. In fact, it was Caesar himself that said it was safer to be one of Herod the Great's pigs than his sons because Herod was supposedly a Jew and wouldn't eat pork it seemed to have no hesitation of killing his own flesh and blood so Herod Antipas had played low had been low-key had managed to escape and so he was crafty and he was cunning perhaps that was why Jesus was telling him that he was a fox he understood what it was that Herod was trying to do but the second thing he was communicating to Herod is that he is impotent. In fact, he not only calls him a fox, he calls him a female fox. A vixen is a female fox. Now, I would never like to be called a female fox, a vixen, okay? At least, you know, call me a dangerous person, right? But to call a man a vixen, you're, an, you're impotent. There's nothing you can do to stop me. A fox is a varmint. It destroys the crops and the vegetation. But Jesus is saying, you're nothing to me. You're a mere uh, a fly, if you will, in terms of what I am trying to do, what I am going to do. Go tell that fox that I cast out demons and perform curses. And today, today and tomorrow and the third day, I finish my course. In fact, he says to the Pharisees, go make sure he hears what it is that I am saying right now. Because I have a course to run. You see, today, if you do the math, it doesn't really make sense where we think he is based on that it'll take him three days to reach Jerusalem. No, we know that the course that he is choosing to run is the course that ultimately will end with him on the cross three days in the heart of the earth and the resurrection 
See, Herod is saying, if you leave, you will live. But Jesus is saying, I am going because I choose to die. I'm in charge, little king, not you. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today, tomorrow, and the day following. There, he says it again. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. The real danger, Herod, is not you. It's ultimately the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Isn't that ironic? Jesus goes into this soliloquy about Jerusalem that this is the reputation of the city of God. Was it not God that said, I will have you as my people and you will build a temple and I will put my name there. People will come from around the world and they will recognize that God lives here with his people. And yet Israel's history has been cruelty to the prophets. Those who come in the names of, name of the Lord, they don't listen. They've stoned them. In fact, the penalty of stoning, you stone people for apostasy and blasphemy. In other words, denying God and speaking against God. Yet such has been the history of those sent by God to the city of God. And now the chief prophet comes. And so Jesus, refusing to be taken off of his plan, is knowingly going to his death. We would think it extraordinary cruelty if someone who is sentenced to die by the electric chair. Each day we would incrementally move them one cell closer to that particular chamber. So they would have to contemplate their death as they went closer and closer day by day. And yet this is exactly what Jesus is doing. Day by day, walking toward his death, full well knowing it's in Israel that was known as Mount Moriah some time before. That it was Isaac, if you'll remember, the son of Abraham, who was, had to walk up the hill carrying the fire for his own sacrifice, not knowing who was to be the sacrifice. And yet here is Jesus walking, the ultimate Isaac, slowly heading up toward Jerusalem to die a physical death, an excruciating death. By the way, that's where the word excruciating comes from, out of the cross. An excruciating physical death and an unfathomable spiritual death, dying for the sins of the world. And so what a comparison and contrast between Herod who has in his mind only self-interest gain protection the little king and Jesus the true king and so what Jesus is communicating in this passage is I am in charge and my plans will not be thwarted by anyone by you Herod or anyone else as we fast forward to the world today, we see similar maneuverings, don't we? 
even in our own country. Our desire to push Jesus to a safe place. Go over there into that corner and no harm will come to you, Jesus, or your church. Just don't bother me with my plans. The intellectuals and the power brokers implicitly and explicitly threaten Jesus Christ and His church. If you stay in an acceptable spot, we will let you have your place. But you have no authority over us. But as Jesus said to Herod, so He says to the world, dare I say to the United States of America, I am in charge. I shall not accept your terms for my rule. I give my life when and where and for who I want, for whom I want. My plan shall stand. So a recent article, it was actually on CBN, I found this fascinating. Christian students told they can't play at championship game. Keep in mind, this is the State Association of Athletics for Florida that said that two Christian high school teams who are in the state championship for their respective division were forbidden to pray before a championship game. A tradition that they had been doing since 1970. The FHSAA told them that if they prayed over the loudspeaker, it would be viewed as the unlawful government endorsement of religion. The Liberty Institute, along with attorneys of the two schools, are demanding an apology. Astounding! Two Christian schools, even. And the twisting of this law, unlawful government endorsement of religion. Anyone with even a rudimentary understanding of history and an objectivity will see that that was not the purpose of any rule of government. To keep religion out of government, not government out of religion. And yet the audacity to communicate this. And is that not the nature of our world and our country? This is the most irreligious, anti-religious administration and government that I have ever seen, that historians have ever seen. And we can't just lay it at the executive branch. No, the judicial branch, the legislative branch, pushing Christianity, religion to the corner. But ultimately, my friends, we have a representative government. Okay, these people didn't come to power with a gun. They came to power because they were elected. And so where does the fault lay? It lays at we the people who want to push Jesus to a safe place. So how about you? What do you say to the King of Kings? Yes, I recognize you in your proper place. But you have no jurisdiction here. We would never say this out loud, but you are the little king and I am the big king. And you are here to serve my purposes, 
rather than I am here to serve yours. But you see, Herod could not stop him. The communist governments of the world could not stop him. The United States cannot stop him, and neither can you. So you're only fighting against God. What Jesus is communicating to us is you must put me in my proper place. Stop negotiating. Stop being crafty and cunning. Recognize who I am. Recognize what I've done. For Jesus did reach that cross. He did die. And he did rise again. There are many things you can fight against and win. Oppression. Injustice. But you can't fight against God. So embrace his plan. Embrace his promise. If you seek to find that which brings peace. Well, this brings me to my second point. Jesus' plan reveals Jesus' heart. It's a very interesting juxtaposition in this passage because the first part of it is full of sternness and insult, right? Go tell that fox. This is what I'm going to do. But then his heart, all of a sudden, as he looks at Jerusalem, becomes tender and sweet and longing. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? There are only a couple times when Jesus actually says somebody's name twice. Oh, Martha, Martha, Simon, Simon, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How many times have I longed? This isn't a fleeting feeling that Jesus is communicating. There's a longing. There's a continual desire, a longing to gather. And it's a beautiful illustration. And in fact, it's one that God uses throughout the scriptures. It's of a hen gathering the brood under her wings. Remember in Exodus 19.4, when God gathers the people and brings them out to his mountain and says to them on Mount Sinai, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings. I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. I gathered you to myself. How about Deuteronomy 32.10? God found Israel in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness and encircled him and cared for him and kept him as the apple of his eye. An eagle that stirs up its nest and flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. It was God who found them and kept them as the apple of his eye, surrounding them. What about the Psalms that continue to speak of this beautiful language? Wonderfully show your steadfast love, Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. 
Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Be merciful to me, Psalm 57.1 says. Oh God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I sing in the shadow of your wings, Psalm 63.7. And finally, Psalm 91.3, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. What a beautiful picture of the mother that covers the little ones. They don't have a house, they don't have a covering, those little ones who have no refuge and protection from predators or from the elements. The mother, the father, they are the house. And so this is a picture of the heart of God. Have we not, can we not relate to those small ones in the nest? Are there not times when you are hurting? Maybe even right now. Are there not times when you are frightened? Even adults feel frightened, sometimes young ones. Are there not times when you feel abandoned? And there is no protection, none who will defend and watch over you. But Jesus says, how I have longed to gather you to myself, to put my wings over you, to bring you close to me, to let you know that you are safe. We'll be celebrating, my sons, remembering, celebrating the anniversary of his death. I'm, of course, speaking of my older son. I have two other sons and a daughter. And I remember the night that I went to look for him because he had not come home. And it would make sense that I would go look for him because that's what a parent does. And ultimately, I found him or his car and all the police were already there. He had already passed. And despite the love that my wife and I have for our oldest, I could not cover him. I could not be there, though I wish I was, to protect him gets harder and harder as your kids get older and older, doesn't it? But even when I was not there, the peace that my wife and I and our family have is that God covers him. That his purposes never fail. That on the surface, the world might say, oh, how could this happen? We know because we see the guiding hand of God covering Mark, bringing him to himself because his plan and his purposes never fail. And he is the true Jerusalem, the foundation of peace. 
Friends, you and I need his covering. You can't stop his death or his resurrection because you cannot stop his love. And so if you're not a Christian, hear the message. Submit to the king. Not as simply a king, but rather as a father. To be gathered. To be found. To be loved. He is where you find yourself. And Christian, do you live like you have no shelter? When the storm comes, do you panic and run and jump out of the nest, looking all around, yet refusing to look up to Him? He has come that we might have peace in the storm. For He said, in this world you will have trouble. So when you are tired, rest in Him. When you're joyful, sing in Him. We're kind of like snails, you and me. We take our house everywhere we go. Even though you can't see it. It is spacious enough for your life and your heart. Christ has come near. So will you rest under his lordship? Or will you deny it? We've spoken of his plan. We've spoken of his heart. Finally, I speak to our response. We see the lament that Jesus gives. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood? And you were not willing. Behold, your house, Jerusalem, is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The town ultimately, Jesus will walk into it and it will reject him. Sure, there's that initial short-lived joy. Here is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which will be replaced in the town square with crucify him, crucify him. As Pilate says, shall I give to your, your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Though some did believe, and I think of Pentecost, but ultimately we know what happens to Jerusalem in AD 70. The Romans under Emperor Titus come and lay siege to it. And it's buttoned up so tight that they decide to build initial walls and just starve them all. And the Emperor Josephus talks of the fact that the city ultimately became quiet. That there was no longer any weeping. Because as the bodies piled higher, the people were too exhausted to mourn. And finally, when the walls were breached, the anger of the Roman soldiers was so great that they ignored the commands of the commanding officer and set fire to the city. Josephus said that over one million were killed in the siege, which doesn't seem possible. Titus reportedly refused to accept Aretha victory 
saying that the victory did not come through his own efforts, but that he had merely served as an instrument of God's wrath. My friends, the year is 2016. The king has come. The world rejects. And the king will come again. Nobody knows the day or the hour, but he will surely come. As the scriptures say, when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we may receive what is due. The world has given their response. Church, we must give ours. We must all each stand before him. We must honor him if, how, if we are Christians by demonstrating it in how we live. And we must honor him in demonstrating how we love. For were not the commands of our commanding officer to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, be ambassadors, preach the gospel to all nations, for unbelievers are still out there who will respond to his message of love. Gold and silver has the church. But for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. Jesus' plans will come to fruition. His heart has been shown on the cross. And every day, his love is renewed for his people. Christ has come near. Will you rest under his lordship? Or will you deny it? It's the choices that we make that ultimately determine who we are. So much more than our gifts and abilities. Paris has its Eiffel Tower. London has its clock. New York has its character. I have my Christ. What defines you? Let's pray. Jesus, you came to gather us. Lord, I pray for each and every one of the people here that if they are not gathered, that they would come to you on bended knee, surrendering their heart to you and all your affection. Lord, we do not pray for the world. We pray for those that have been given to you. Jesus, give us the strength to live holy lives because of your grace, to love the world 
each and every person, no matter how they feel about you. Let us be found to be faithful at the time that you come to be marveled.